Welcome back to another episode of Best Case Ever mini podcast series as part of EM Cases. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. I have a very special guest today. He's uh, going to be uh, interviewed all the way from Halifax, Nova Scotia. We have Dr. George Kobach, who is a professor of emergency medicine at Dalhousie University, where he also works clinically as an emergency physician in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. And if you recognize his name, you probably know him as a world-renowned airway expert, having been one of the co-founders of the AIM Airway course, that's uh, Airway Interventions and Management in Emergencies. And he's published extensively on this topic, earning him cross appointments to the Departments of Anesthesia and the Division of Medical Education at Dalhousie. He's here today. He's got some interesting airway cases for us, and I can't wait to hear about it. So, George, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. So, best case ever. Tell me what you got for us this month. So again, I, I need to preface this with best case ever when we're talking about emergency medicine or resuscitation is, is obviously best case in terms of it being interesting. The first case, and if we get to a second case, you know, unfortunately, these are terrible scenarios for the patient. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But this is a, a, a patient that presented to us with little heads up. And it was a, a young guy who was in his 20s. And uh, he was having some troubles in life. And after something went bad in his life, he felt that the way he was going to resolve that was with a knife to his neck. And so what he did was he stabbed himself in the neck and then sort of took off into the woods. And he was apprehended and brought in by EHS, our pre-hospital system here. And we had about a 10-minute heads up that we've got a 21-year-old guy coming in with a penetrating neck injury. So that's the setup. So what did the patient look like when he finally got to your ED? The patient arrived with the EHS team. He was sort of sitting up and he had a a shirt full of blood and the medic was sort of holding a gauze right over the middle of his anterior neck and there was sort of blood dripping down. And uh, you see this guy and I'm going to skip through the fact that, you know, from a primary survey point of view, you know, he was satting okay. His sats were 95%. He was hemodynamically uh, okay. Mentating okay. No other. Mentating okay, considering the scenario. Right. But he was alert GCS 15. And you could see blood from his mouth and then blood dripping down from his anterior neck. That's the way he sort of, I guess, rolled in. So already, you know, you're talking about some of the soft signs of penetrating neck trauma. You know, you're seeing orphangeal blood. You know, he might be having some uh, dyspnea, but nothing that sounds like a hard sign of neck injury just yet. Well, yeah, nothing. The first thing that you want to do, and this is any trauma patient, but in particular, somebody with the penetrating neck, is that you want to talk to them, right? I want, I want to hear their voice, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, which is going to give me a lot of information. So this guy... Uh, there was a bit of a language barrier, but he definitely had an altered voice. And when you sort of take down the wound, right, because it was just a gauze being held on, you know, essentially he had about a two to three centimeter laceration just to the left of mid-thyroid cartilage. And he was coughing up and spitting up blood, and then there was blood coming from the wound. No bubbles to see, but that's the scenario when it, The big thing from it, and it's a bit of a pet peeve uh, that I have, is that a penetrating neck injury from an airway point of view, 
And we're going to put aside, there was no obvious expanding hematoma. There was no other, you know, injury. The immediate concern was whether he has a penetrating injury to his airway. Right. So those are two different things. You can have a penetrating neck injury and the airway is fine and you can manage that most of the time, however you want. But if you suspect and can't rule out a penetrating neck that involves the airway, either primarily from penetration of the airway or secondarily from distortion because of a hematoma or, or something uh, deep within the wound, then that's obviously the concern. So that's what my head's thinking. Um, we're definitely saying, okay, this patient needs his airway uh, managed. And the next question really comes on is, is that, you know, what's your approach going to be to do that? Where should it happen? Is this something that it should happen in the emergency department? Do we have the resources and the people to do it in the emergency department? Or is this patient stable enough that they can uh, go to the operating room and have it done in a control setting with other people involved? So that's where my thinking goes here. What I ended up doing is because I was trauma team leader and I felt that what I needed to do is I need to offload my responsibility because as a trauma team leader, you know, I, I shouldn't be involved in specific tasks. I should be overseeing the case. So I stayed as trauma team leader in terms of the decision making and being able to work with our team. But then when I made the decision that I was going to manage the airway, I handed over the trauma team responsibility to another colleague trauma team leader so I could manage the airway. Right. So that's like that CRM task of like, okay, now that I'm really getting my hands dirty, I can't just hang out at the foot of the bed anymore. Someone else needs to like, you have to explicitly say someone else is taking over that role. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and again, you can get fixated on a particular task and really lose control of the, of the bigger picture and scenario. So you have to do that formally. And, you know, you tell the nurses, tell your team that, you know, I'm going to be doing the airway and working with the people here and Johnny here is now the uh, trauma team leader. So you delegate that task and carry on. So when you take down the dressing and actually look at the wound, like I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what's happening. You got this, you know, multi-centimeter thing. It's zone two. It's just by the thyroid cartilage. What was pushing you towards getting this airway done sooner? Like other than the, the voice change, like that's still potentially something that could wait until you get upstairs. Was, was there anything that was really saying, okay, you know, this guy needs something right now? Yeah, well, yes and no. The way I, I view a neck injuries or potential upper airway problems is that you've got a confined space. The neck is a confined space. The airway is a confined space. And if you've either got obstruction, distortion, or disruption, they're good until they're dead. And so these people don't dwindle right? They don't dwindle and then, you know, like a respiratory failure person who gradually gets worse, right? They'll be okay with the symptoms that they have and then something bad will happen. Right. You can't um, wait for like so, their sat to be bad or something or like, you know, hypotension no, or something like that. No, right. No. And it's not, it's going to be, if you've got voice change, if you've got somebody who's stridulous, you know, they have significant compromise and when they go bad, it's going to go bad with a snap of the fingers and it's going to be a panic scenario. So it was my judgment that um, now ENT had arrived actually by, by this point and anesthesia was there. And so what I did is I called a huddle and said, listen, this is my thoughts about what the injuries are potentially and what my approach would be. And then I was trying to be diplomatic because I wanted to do this airway and I felt I was the right person to do this airway. And so we had that dialogue and discussion as a team and we agreed upon the approach. 
And again, you know, not to get into too much detail, but ultimately in, in airway management, there's two approaches. There are many more that are used, but really, realistically, there's two. There's a wake or doing an RSI. And doing an RSI on a penetrating neck injury, it's been talked about, and there's some literature out there to say it's safe. And I have a lot of problem with that as an approach, and I can tell you briefly why that is. And it was not going to be my approach unless this was sort of a, you know, a Hail Mary, you know, the patient's dying. I need to control the situation. And, and I decided to do that. Like a true crash airway kind of moment kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I think, and, I think the idea the, of paralyzing a patient like this would be pretty sphincter tightening for pretty much anyone. Yeah, it would be. Like you're really taking options away from yourself, right? Yeah, you are. And, and why we tend to do that and I understand this completely, is that, is that sometimes what we want to do is make it easier for us. And easier for us doesn't necessarily mean easier or better for the patient, right? We want to do what's familiar to us. And most of us are familiar with doing RSI and don't do very many awakes. So in a situation that's tough, you're going to gravitate towards doing the thing that you're most comfortable with. But that might not be the, the right thing to do for this patient. I don't think it is. You know, that if you look at some series of airway management and penetrating neck injuries, they'll say, well, you know, there's almost all of them were done by RSI and everything went okay. That's because we don't know what the incidence of airway injury was. As I said, you can do anything you want with a penetrating neck as long as it doesn't distort or disrupt or affect the airway. But you don't know that prospectively usually. Right. So since most penetrating necks don't affect the airway, of course, it's going to be safe. But we doesn't mean that that's validating the approach of doing an RSI. Yeah, that's a great perspective on RSI for penetrating neck trauma. The idea that just because paralyzing is something we're most comfortable with doesn't make it the safest for the patient. So you alluded to doing a awake intubation for this particular patient. What does awake intubation look like to you? An awake approach really is about topicalization and, if you need to, um, sedation, not the other way around. A lot of people call an awake being somebody that I'm not paralyzing, in other words, doing a ketamine-facilitated intubation. That's not an awake intubation. And uh, so it's primarily topicalization. If you need some sedation, then I will use sedation and it will be ketamine. So and then you, you choose your, your device. And your device, in my mind, there's really the ideal device is to use a device that allow you to access the airway and inspect the airway. And the only such device to do that is a flexible endoscope. And uh, something now that many departments have in the Ambu A-scope, which is a disposable version. So that was going to be my approach. So you've made your decision. He's not getting an RSI. He's getting awake intubation, which to you means topicalize early, topicalize well. And sedation only if you really need it. So you're trying to avoid things that can cause harm, like paralyzing. Now, you mentioned defaulting to awake intubation more often than not, if only just to get familiar with the drugs and the technique. Do you see any value in mental rehearsal? You know, you're a big airway educator. Have you had people say there's a benefit to running this quickly in your mind on your way to work? Everybody talks about it. Everybody knows that there's definite benefit to do it, but nobody does it. And uh, I don't say nobody does it. We don't do it. So this is, you know, the high acuity, low opportunity scenario. How do we how do we get good and stay good with it? Because you don't you can't really create these opportunities. And that's really what deliberate practice is. Deliberate practice is, is challenging yourself, making effortful practice so you can create these experiences. One of 
things to do is you say is mental rehearsal or even doing psychomotor rehearsal, which is where you actually just doing the hand movements without the equipment actually in your hands so that you're able to do it, whether it's doing it with a crike, um, whether it's doing your approach to a, a grade three view with uh, direct laryngoscopy, whether it's your approach to difficult intubation with video laryngoscopy or performing a uh, surgical airway. There's about really five things in airway management that you don't necessarily encounter all the time that you need to be able to do very quickly without a whole lot of thought because of the stress of the scenario. And I agree with you, absolutely. Psychomotor and mental rehearsal is, is something to do. And I've said this before in talks I've given, I go to the bathroom before a big case comes in. And I've already told you just before we started this, um, one of the reasons why is because I'm in my mid-50s and my bladder size seems to be <laughs> less and, and uh, my prostate size probably bigger. And so I go to empty my bladder. But when I go to the bathroom, I look in the mirror and, and I say, I've got this. You know, I can do this and I do a, I do do some some breathing, right? I do some tactical breathing about three cycles and there's good evidence to sort of support that is allows me to sort of, um, you know, go through it. And if there's a specific procedure in question, I'll go through the mental rehearsal. I can't say I do that all the time, but it is something I really do believe that there's evidence for and it has helped me and it's something we should do. One of our mutual friends, one of my co-residents, Dr. Peter Erden, very early on in our training, we did like a sim together. And the first thing he said to me afterwards when we were debriefing, he's like, the first person's pulse you got to take is your own. And he's yeah. like, well, you know, whether that involves tactical breathing or, you know, some way of just getting for a second, like acknowledging your own physiology and getting that tamped down so you can actually like do what's best for your patient. Yeah. And we all look pretty cool and calm if we take pictures in the, of us in the resuscitation room. But that's not what's going on inside. If it is, you're abnormal. Yeah, so we need to address ourselves. And there's so much more to airway management that makes it dangerous than the patient's anatomy and pathology. And that's a concept we've been talking about with John Sackles and uh, Mosher from Arizona and Adam Law here. And, and it's the dangerous airway. So again, there are patient factors that make the case dangerous. And then there are environmental factors that make it dangerous. And one of those, those environmental factors are what's your skill set? You know, what's your anxiety level? What resources do you have available to you to, you know, support yourself and that patient? And those factors influence outcome just as much as their presenting pathology does often. So with the young guy you have in front of you, you've identified it as a difficult, dangerous airway, and even though you have tons of help at the bedside, you're jumping in. So you have this flexible intubation scope, in your case an A-scope. Walk me through how this works. Did you topicalize with NEBS? Did you use viscous Lido? Did you spray with an atomizer? What did you use? I did do a post on MCRIT, um, you know, on this, and this it is critical. It's... Um what we tend to default in emergency medicine is saying one of the relative contraindications to doing it in a way because you don't have a cooperative patient. And I used to think that, but I'll tell you, it's very rare that I can't do an awake because of cooperation, because either I can make them cooperative by talking to them, or I can, if I need to, make them cooperative by a drug like ketamine, if I need to. But this is a guy, think of it, who just stabbed himself in the neck, whose mental state isn't that clear but he's presented here. And these people usually want to live and they just don't like what's going on and you talk to the person. So that's key, step number one. Explain what's going to happen. The tools of the trade are key here 
And it's about having the right equipment and the right delivery mechanism. So the right equipment or drugs is lidocaine and two types of lidocaine. 5% ointment, and you're essentially going to take about a two centimeter glob and put it up on a, the end of a tongue depressor like a lidocaine lollipop. This is ointment. It's not viscous, right? So it's thicker. And the 2% gel or is not going to do the job here. And then the second thing you need is 4% lidocaine and you need a delivery mechanism. And the delivery mechanism can't be a nebulizer. It's That's going to get to the lungs and it's going to take forever to deliver and it's not going to be effective. So you need an atomizer. They're $20 throw away ones. It's a 15 cc max volume. It comes in a 50 cc max volume and a 15. And I tell you, we had a a lidocaine toxicity case because somebody used 50 cc's and the patient went into, uh, you know, full-blown lidocaine toxicity, uh, you know, required intralipid and it was a disaster. So I put 10 cc's of 4% lidocaine in this atomizer, has a directional tip. It's called um, Easy Spray and we'll put a link on the post here for it. And then this 5% ointment. So what I do is I start with a spray in the mouth uh, with the 4% with the atomizer, it's hooked up to eight liters of air or oxygen and spray everything in sight. You tell the person this is going to taste yucky, um, that type of thing. And they'll make some weird, you know, contorted look in their face and they'll agree and they'll swallow what's there. Then I go in with the lollipop and the key is you have to anesthetize the posterior third of the tongue. So as it sort of starts to, you know, angle down towards the vallecula. So I get them to stick out their tongue if they can't, because they can't be cooperative. I get somebody to trap their tongue with a gauze, hold it out, and then I put the tongue depressor in it. I don't wipe it off. I use the weight of the tongue depressor to essentially deliver it. And it just goes from side to side and then it melts. And you'll have to do this in about two or three applications with that single lollipop to get it all sort of melted back there. And then you've really anesthetized the most sensitive area for whatever instrument you use. Now, at the end, you can use a direct laryngoscope, you can use a video laryngoscope, you can use a bronchoscope. So next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go back in with my atomizer and try to now topicalize the glottic inlet and the trachea. And there's a directional tip on that atomizer so I can angle it down, go through the mouth and topicalize it. And to topicalize the airway, ideally, if the patient can coordinate their breath, they take some inspirations in as you deliver it. And you're doing this on a few attempts. Alternatively, you can topicalize through the nose as they take a big breath in through their nose, and that will help deliver it to the trachea. But essentially, I'll deliver that 10 cc's plus that ointment. And, you know, I'd say eight out of 10 times, I've got really solid topicalization to complete this procedure. Do you find any utility at all for doing nebulized 4% or do you just abandon that altogether? No, uh, there's no role. Now, you gave a great, uh, very detailed uh, explanation of how to properly do topicalization, which I think is something, even as a learner, you know, we try to have our scripts for, I would do an awake intubation, this is what it looks like. In those scripts often, or in the list of things we need to consider for topicalization is using other adjuncts to help reduce secretions, like a pyrolate is mentioned. Do you ever consider giving those or do you think it's just a waste of time? There's too many side effects. It takes too long to work uh, or have you yeah. actually given those in the past? Yeah. So, so I, I haven't bottom line. I haven't, and it's not an evidence-based decision. You know, it's, it's how much additional you know value is it going to give? It's not going to decrease secretions of a sick patient. 
it's going to dry their mucous membranes, um, which might mean better sort of topicalization. But you do need to do it. A lot of people give it IM. And if you give it IM, you need 30 minutes before you do it. Yeah, even IV, it needs to be given a certain amount, 10 to 15 minutes for it to work. But I haven't used it. And uh, so I really can't comment. I don't think it's necessary. And when I consult with, I think, probably the world's expert who's a local and happens to be my neighbor, previous uh, chapter uh, editor for the Airway uh, chapter in Rosen, Ian Morris, um, agrees that they use it, but it's probably not absolutely necessary. Oh, okay. Well, that is something that I had not considered before. So you were saying that cooperation is probably the most paramount thing to this and that we sometimes estimate how cooperative patients can be. What if you get the guy who is just like really not cooperating, the guy who is like taking a swing at you, he's clearly very intoxicated. What would you do with that guy? Would you paralyze him maybe? I, I would in that situation say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do uh, an RSI. I'd like to have you know, a good ENT surgeon at my bedside because depending on the level of the injury, the surgical approach might be, a, you know, a low trach or it might be, a, you know, not an easy, you know, let's go to the crike kind of scenario. But usually what I would do is a combined approach. So you do your, we call it a triple setup, right? So you're going to go in from above, but I have two tools from going in from above. I'm using a combination of a video laryngoscope and a flexible scope in combination. And then your third approach is your surgical as a default. This is something that we've trained for. And it actually is pretty easy to do. It actually takes a lot of the skill away of navigating a, uh, a flexible scope. When somebody's holding the video laryngoscope and they don't have to necessarily be a skilled person, you can get the view, ask them to hold it, and then you can navigate the scope. And the real beautiful way to do that is with a channel device through a King Vision. And we published a paper, you know, on that. But that's my go-to and somebody that I wanted to do awake, but it's just not going to work and I'm going to put them to sleep. I'll use a combined uh, video flexible scope approach. So one person driving the VL and using that view to get the intubating scope to the glottic inlet and then transferring vision to the flex scope to get it all the way in. If you're like me, I mean, I imagine the listeners would probably be more comfortable with the mechanics of that, because the toughest part of navigating a flexible scope is just getting it to the glottis. So that's awesome, George. You know, what was the case resolution? Did he need any uh, surgical management of his injury? Yeah, he did. He ended up having a uh, trach. He ended up having a uh, laceration to his uh, thyroid cartilage that actually had penetrated his airway. Um, you know, he had a, a good resolution from a um, his surgical injury and uh, and a long rehab from the from the supratentorial part of the tragic case, but yeah, it did go well. I, this was sort of early in my flexible um, scope career kind of scenario, so that's why for me it was one of the you know my best case kind of thing. It was um, I felt I was adding a skill set that I've I've since used pretty regularly. A couple quick points you need to make. You have to remember about if you do an RSI in this patient. In these patients with penetrating neck injuries, you have to be careful of anything blind, right? So, you know, small tubes, if you're going to use a bougie, problem is potentially with a bougie, if you've got a partially disrupted, um, you know, airways that you, you dissect know, you right get down. down right? Yeah, you dissect down. Or that if you go for, for holdup, this is the one situation holdup I wouldn't go for, you know, again, that it puts pressure on the distal segment and that causes disruption. And the other thing you got to be careful about is doing any sort of positive pressure ventilation until you a tube has passed the breach. Um, because if you bag these patients, 
or use a superglottic, then what they'll do, and they have a penetrating airway injury, they'll get pretty massive and distorting subcutaneous emphysema. So you really have to be careful and uh, do sort of an aventilatory approach if possible or very cautiously because that can really cause unexpected uh, problem. Yeah, no, that's something I'd never thought about because I think, you know, you always think, okay, well, if you can bag the patient, they're okay. But you're actually sort of shooting yourself in the foot unless they actually need it, unless there's like a true problem with oxygenation. Yeah, you're not shooting yourself in the foot, it's in the head. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. in the neck, I guess, maybe more, yeah, more appropriately. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's, yeah. you know, thanks so much, George. That's a super high yield case. Like trying to keep track of all those learning points is even hard. I'm going to try and quickly summarize a couple of them. Some couple of basic things, just always thinking about calling for help early when you know you have a difficult or dangerous airway, whether that's, uh, you know, your trauma team or anesthesia or ENT, getting them from out of the hospital and down in the, uh, in the resuscitation bay. Also being aware that penetrating neck injuries are, you know, like you said, good until they're not. You know, they might be oxygenating okay, but if there is, whether it's a primary or secondary airway insult because of, say, hematoma, uh, they can deteriorate really quickly. So being able to sort of anticipate those and plan for it. I really love the point you made, too, about practicing things that you're not comfortable with and not just defaulting to something because you've done it before. Sometimes what's best for your patient isn't the thing that you've done the most, but, you know, there is some subtleties to actually doing something that's better for... uh, the patient, and that can be either done by insight-use sim or practicing it out your mind or doing, like you were saying, deliberate rehearsal or mental rehearsal before those critical moments. And in those critical moments, to take a second and check your own physiology too, whether that's a five-second mental pep talk or doing some tactical breathing or just checking your own pulse and getting yourself, you know, vagal down a little bit for before you do a critical procedure. So thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us today, George. Uh, it was a really uh, useful case, really high-yield case. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. It's not often you get a total masterclass in awake intubation from an airway expert, so this was pretty awesome. So that about wraps it up for this episode of Best Case Ever. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rajiv Thavanathan. Follow me on Twitter. That's at Rajiv Thava or at R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. And until next time, keep your stick on the ice. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.